Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Hi everyone, my name is Sarah Martin and I'm honored to serve back with the Way Kids. So always looking for more um, volunteers, if you're interested, come see me. Amen. Amen. I will be reading today from Acts 9 verses 1 through 4. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. Perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for your word. And right now, we just ask that you continue to lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit, just to be encouraged by your presence through your word. Lord, help us to see you more clearly. Move in this place, Father. We thank you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. Thanks. We'll continue our series. If you're new here, we've been in the series for several weeks now. It's week six, Moment to Movement. And what we've been talking about is that as you look back at your own lives, there's been moments in your life that led to movements of you doing X, Y, and Z, right? It's always a moment that initiates a movement. And as we've looked through Acts, we're doing a high kind of overview survey of Acts, that there's moments that led to the gospel reaching you here, why we can proclaim Jesus in this area, why we're worshiping this morning. But it started with different moments. And today we're going to see another moment that led to a significant movement of the gospel. And so again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1 together as we've seen as Sarah read this morning. But if you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, What's Your Story? What's Your Story? And again, this is building off of what we saw last week. Last week, we saw that Stephen was martyred. We saw this man named Saul, who was encouraging the slain of Stephen. And it talked about Saul in Acts 8, that Saul was ravaging the church, going from house to house, dragging off men and women to arrest them and put them in prison. And so here you see Saul again and he was traveling to Damascus, and Damascus was about 175 miles from Jerusalem, which would have been a six-day journey. So definitely going out of his way to accomplish the purposes that he had planned. And Saul now, a man full of anger, now had full authority to arrest anyone who aligned with the way. It's interesting. This movement was known as the way, and don't really know why. They got this label as followers of Jesus of the way, but there's some thoughts, and primarily thought comes out of Jesus' own words. That's recorded in John chapter 14, verse 6, when Jesus says, I am the way. And so all these followers were aligning with Jesus being the only way. And what's that mean? That means that there is a God, and there's only one way to have that relationship with God, and that's through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. Not a way. He's the way. And it's interesting, now we, we toss around the term Christian quite a bit, but the Christian word was first seen in the Bible in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch. It was the first 
time, believers, followers of the way were called Christians. And it's thought that most likely that was an outsider term for Christians, and it was more meant for mockery, which is interesting. But here this movement is called the way, and so Saul has sought out to stop this movement. This was the moment Saul was going to stop the end of this gospel-advancing movement called the way. And, and so here he is traveling to Damascus, and as he goes, it's, it's interesting to note, and I think it comes, goes without saying because we've talked through it, but who was Saul looking to persecute? Christians, right? Followers of the way. But then as he's traveling, what happens? The light comes out of nowhere. He falls to the ground, and he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interesting. Here his plans to go and persecute members of the way are suddenly interrupted. I don't know if you've ever had your plans suddenly interrupted, but it's not a great feeling, right? Like we've talked about before, I've got some pretty good plans every day that I live, and it's shocking when they don't go according to plan. It says suddenly, I love that, because that's what Jesus does, suddenly interrupts him. And so who was it that interrupts Jesus and interrupts Saul's plans, and that's exactly what Saul asks. In verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. That's fascinating to me. Because, again, Saul is seeking out followers of the way, believers in Jesus, what would be known as Christians. But Jesus interrupts his plan and says, you are persecuting me. And throughout the New Testament, we see believers described as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Children of God. Man, such encouragement is packed in this, this section of Scripture. It shows the union that believers have with Jesus. I was just thinking through this practically. Now, I think we know this for the family members that we have in our family that we, we care about. And if maybe the person that you don't care about sitting next to you, just remain quiet at this time. But like as parents, we, we know this with our kids that we love. We feel such an attachment to them. When they get hurt, we feel their pain because the empathy is so connected that we can feel their struggle. Like we have some, we have some kids. Y'all know. And they're active. And so time to time they get hurt. And we spend more time in the doctor's office than we would like to admit the last several years. But man, it, it's hard when your kid is broken and the doctor's trying to fix them. But yet the doctor's hurting your kid as they're trying to help me, you know this, but I'm trying to restrain myself from jumping across the table, right, to rescue my kid from this doctor who's actively hurting him. It, like, I feel the pain. It's been about, man, almost 20 years ago now, I, I broke my, my left humerus right in half snowboarding and uh, on top of the mountain. And so my wife, Rachel, had to follow the ambulance down the winding roads late at night to the hospital. When we get to the hospital, I'm laying in bed, and they're trying to treat me, and my wife's sitting right here next to me. Next thing you know, she starts turning pale and getting woozy. And doctors had to treat her, put an oxygen mask on her while I had the broken arm. Like, what is going on over here? But she felt my pain. It's interesting. These words of Jesus, why are you persecuting me? Just that union that we have in Christ. And this isn't interesting that just as you, as you go down this road, 
What is done against Christians is seen as done against Christ himself. Now let that filter just for a second. What is done against Christians is seen as done against Christ himself. So man, if that doesn't influence how we treat one another, I don't know what does. I'm not talking about us. You guys are killing it. You guys love one another just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for. We know that. But man, how we talk about and treat other Christians matters a whole lot. But notice how Jesus addresses Saul. He says, Saul, Saul. The name being repeated seems to show a type of intimacy and urgency being stated. And we see this all throughout Scripture. When God calls Moses through the burning bush, what's he say? Moses, Moses. When Abraham was out Mount Moriah, was just about to stab his son, God speaks to him, Abraham, Abraham. When Elijah stood up on the earth watching Elijah ascend, he says, my father, my father. When King David mourns the loss of his son, he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. And you have Jesus himself on the cross, hanging there, dying in some of his last words, last breaths. He says, my God, my God. And here you have Jesus saying, Saul, Saul. There's an urgency from stopping Saul from what he's about to do, but there's an intimacy there. And it's a great reminder that all people everywhere, despite your background, your baggage, where you're from, what you've done, has a commonality. I mean, just think about from those people who were actively killing Jesus, driving the stakes in his hands, to us today, raising our hands and worship to Jesus, we all have something very specific in common and very real and very powerful in common. According to Genesis 1.27, we are made in the image of God. Psalm 139 says, God knit us together, formed us in our mother's wombs, remarkably, wonderfully made. This isn't just for Christians, this is for people. I personally like Jeremiah chapter 1, when God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet, meaning be a spokesperson proclaiming the words of God. He says this in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. He says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, meaning whatever Jeremiah did up to this point, it didn't diminish God's plans for him. And it's a reminder, I know you know this, a friendly reminder, there's only been one perfect person whose feet has ever touched the earth, Jesus. And why that's been impactful, because Jeremiah, there's no doubt, had done some things, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God before this point where God interrupts Jeremiah. And so I've called you for this, but his calling went way back before Jeremiah was even created, meaning everything he's done up to this point didn't diminish God's call on his life. And so here we see Saul. Whatever he's done to this point didn't diminish what God was about to call Saul to do. And says, remember, God knows you intimately. Even when, or maybe even as you are, rejecting him, he still loves you. 
even in our rejection and our rebellion, because we all were there at some point in our lives, he still loves you. This is an amazing love that's almost unfathomable. Why would I say that? Romans 5, 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means while we were actively sinning, rebelling, rejecting against God, Jesus died for us anyway. Extending the free gift of salvation through everyone who would believe could come to him and receive forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ Jesus and have the relationship that we were created to have in the first place restored with God. So we see in this moment in Saul's life, this would be the moment that would ignite the movement of the gospel like never before. It's interesting how God uses Saul. At first, he uses Saul to fan the flames of the gospel by Christians fleeing Jerusalem. But now he's going to do something different in and through Saul by actually calling Saul to be his chosen instrument. Jesus would turn Saul's history into his story for his glory. A story that Saul would see the power of sharing. Testimony, right? Christianese, testimony, that's what we're talking about. How he experienced Jesus, we see him sharing it a couple more times throughout the book of Acts. One, one time in Acts chapter 22, he was standing before a group of Israelites who were rioting against him because of the name of Jesus. And in Acts 26, he was under arrest for the name of Jesus and stand before King Agrippa. And it's interesting in Acts 26 because we see more of what Jesus actually spoke to Saul in this encounter on Damascus Road. The same thing, he's telling this to King Agrippa. He says, he heard him say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus also says, it is hard for you to kick against the Goads. Now, you may be asking, well, what in the world is a goad? Well, I'm glad you asked. I had to look it up too, so it's all good. It was going to be a prod, a prod that would poke cattle, but not all cattle, specifically the ones that were stubborn or aggressive. Let that sink in for a second. I don't know how you came to Jesus, but I had to get prodded a little bit. So here, we don't know all the details, but evidently Saul was actively fighting against, kicking, rebelling against God's calling, drawing, and leading. And he begs the question, how? And I, we don't know because we weren't given all the details. We just know he was fighting against the goads. But I have some thoughts. So I figured I had the microphone, might as well share those with you. One, Saul was well-educated in God's word. He was a religious leader, a rising religious leader of the day, so he knew God's word well. There's that. He would have known about Jesus and the movement that was of Jesus and the things Jesus has done, so you would think measuring the movement of Jesus with God's word, there would have been something there. Maybe God would have been stirring that he'd been rejecting and rebelling against. Or maybe this, this is interesting, that as Stephen was martyred, Saul was there. Saul would have heard Stephen's sermon. He would have saw, because he was there condoning, encouraging Stephen's slain. Man, what if he was rejecting the conviction he was feeling at those points? Because we know God's word doesn't return void. My question for us is, 
Are you kicking against Jesus' calling, drawing, and leading in your life? We all do it at some level, at some time. I'm just going to give you two broad brush strokes on how we all do this at some level sometime. Number one, initially, and number two, relationally. So initially, there's a point in all of our lives that we are separated from God because of our sin. All of us. And there's a point where Jesus interrupts our lives, if you're following him now, that you have now put your faith in Christ alone for salvation and forgiveness of sins. So initially... It comes with, you have to surrender to Jesus as Lord. Lord meaning master. This is like slave master phraseology. Like he is who you report to. He does, in one sense, own you. And some of that that rubs us the wrong way. Because we have this pride complex. But he's worthy to follow and to trust. As Hank Williams once sang... I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the light. Night, praise the Lord. I saw the light. I remember that was, that was my story. I fought Jesus off for so long until the point to where I could not fight him anymore. I heard the truth about Jesus, but I thought, you know, we're okay. I'm just going to do my thing. Jesus can stay over there. I'm good. It's crazy because I went to church off and on growing up, but it wasn't until I was at the age of 20 until Jesus really wrecked me and actually brought me to himself. Which is just a word that you could sit in church services a lot and still be actively rebelling and rejecting God. As the story goes, there was a church member who asked a young man, what role did he play in his own salvation? The young man would say, well, half. Church member, explain half. How do you do half? He said, well, I rebelled against God all I could, and then he did the rest. To which I would say, amen. I mean, that was my story. And it's interesting, as we think through what Jesus did and how he interrupted your life, the common theme of every testimony of God's grace that I hear is, I was doing my thing, and then Jesus, right? Just living life, and then Jesus. Like, I didn't do anything special, I didn't come to a, just an extra amount of knowledge. Jesus met me where I was. My question is, do you have a story like this? Has Jesus interrupted your life? Have you surrendered to him as your Lord? So there's an initial way that we can fight the calling, drawing, and leading of God. But there's a relational. That means as a follower of Jesus, we have the relationship because we've trusted him for faith alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. And so we have this connection with God, yet we can actively rebel and reject him as we follow him. Which means following Jesus as Lord. Either he's Lord or he's not. So that means everything that you are, everything that you have, everything, all your being, you're laying it as his feet as Lord because you trust him. That's what following is. That's when we have this, this account in Luke 18 when Jesus talks to this young ruler who's known as a rich young ruler. And this young ruler says, yeah, I've kept all the commands. And Jesus says, well, good. Well, go sell all your things, give to the poor, and then come follow me. And says the young man went away very, he says, extremely sad because he was very rich. I mean, Jesus talks a lot about Finances. But there's other things also. So I'm just wanting us to think through, to pray through what may be 
limiting our following of Jesus? What are some things that are causing us to actively reject, rebel against God's calling, drawing, and leading in our life daily as we follow him? Is it finances? Is it family? Friends? What about your own future plans? Man, I just, I want to do this. I know I hear you, God, I'm stirring something, that, but this doesn't align with my future plans. There's a lot of ways we can essentially kick against the goads, fight against God's calling and drawing and leading. But surrendering to Jesus, Lord, means following him even if it seems illogical, irrational, maybe even nonsensical. It's funny, when I was, uh, it's been about 10 years ago, I was thinking about this morning, 10 years ago, many of you know me, some of you don't. In my previous life, I was a firefighter for 15 years. And by God's grace, I really advanced pretty quickly through the ranks of the fire service. And in my early 30s, I was a, the assistant fire chief at our fire station, which is extremely young to be in that position. And I was well on track because I aspired to be the fire chief at a fire station somewhere. And so well on track to do that at a pretty young age. Until Jesus interrupted my life one morning going to work. And man, clearly, as I can just tell you, it wasn't audibly, but it might as well have been. I felt God calling me into full-time ministry. At the time, was pursuing youth ministry. And so as we, Rachel and I, started praying through that, it became very obvious that I could do nothing else. This is how callings usually happen. It's not... So clear, but it's almost, you can do nothing else besides this. I didn't have everything figured out, but I knew we had to do this. Go into youth ministry. It was amazing what God would do over the next two years as transitioning from the assistant fire chief to being a youth pastor. Within the fire department, I got to tell a lot of people about Jesus. Because a lot of people were saying, you are throwing your career away. This makes no sense. You're making a foolish decision. Don't do it. And by the earthly standards, I was. I was throwing a healthy, progressing career away. And over and over again, I got to tell people why I was doing it. It seems nonsensical. This is what followers of Jesus do. Here's my life, Lord. I don't know what that means. Use it. So Jesus here would call Saul, and then another man named Ananias, to do exactly the nonsensical thing to do. In verse 6, Jesus tells Saul to get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And this is interesting because as Jesus calls you to the next thing, he doesn't give you the whole puzzle put together. He gives you a piece. And so you take that one step. And then God will show you the next piece. Then you take the next step. And this is what faith looks like because it keeps us dependent on Jesus. See, I think I, the reason I think this is because it grows our faith as we depend on him. If he gives the whole puzzle, like this is what your future looks like, then we wouldn't have any need for Jesus. We would just do it. But so many of us are so scared to take the next step because we don't have the whole puzzle in view. It takes trust. Continually seek the Lord to, for him to provide. And so this is what he tells Saul to go and I'll show you what to do. And in verse 7 and 8, you see that there was men with him. And Saul actually was blinded during this time. And so he had to be led by these men into Damascus because he couldn't see a thing. And so you see here that Saul went from being authoritative to debilitated in a moment. And this is a note. 
that God will humble you to get your attention if needed. He'll do it, man. And I've been there. I don't want to go there again. I can be hard-headed, may the prodding of stubborn and aggressive. But he'll humble you if that's what it takes to change you. And Jesus from the get-go was teaching Saul what it meant to follow him. While simultaneously he was reminding this man named Ananias what it meant to be a follower of him by faith. Again, he was going to call him to do the nonsensical thing. One of my favorite verses in all scripture, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. That's what this means. Like, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean God's not calling you to do it. Sometimes that's what he's calling you to do most. It makes no sense. But Jesus, I'll do it. Because I trust you. And so you see in verse 10, this man named Ananias. It just talks about he's a disciple in Damascus. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He replies, here I am, Lord. He tells him to get up and go to the street called Straight and to the house of Judas and ask for a man named Tarshish, named Saul, since he was praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. And so here, God is explaining to Ananias, I need you to go to a specific place and he's explaining who this man named Saul is. And what's funny is that Ananias already knows. Like, word of Saul has already spread to Damascus. And I love that this is in these accounts because it's encouraging to me. Because this is the response I would have. And if I could retone into it, it'd be different. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man. This is funny. It's not like, you know, I've heard things like, everyone's saying what we know about this guy. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. So he's talking to God like God doesn't know this, right? This is interesting. Like, we're talking about the same person here. And just to clarify, saints, it's not some super Christian that you pray to. Saints is a term for all Christians who believe in Christ Jesus. It ain't a status thing. Make sense? Everybody good there? He says, the harm he's done to the saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So he's like, God, I don't know if you know all this. I know you've been busy. This guy is actually seeking to arrest me, and he has authority to do so. So are you sure? Like I'm telling you, this is exactly how I'd respond. Like, I don't know. This doesn't make sense. Why would we go to the person who's actually coming to arrest us? But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. So God says, I hear you. Great points. Get moving. So what's Ananias do? He goes. We see that in verse 17, Ananias went and entered the house. And I would love to see what this looked like. Because I seriously doubt. I don't know Ananias. We don't have any accounts about Ananias except for here. And when Saul talks about him, when he shares his testimony in Acts later. But I wonder how timid Ananias would have been entering that house. Right? Like opening the door just to make sure it's like not a trap. Peeking in. 
listening before he goes in, seeing if there's a guy praying in there. It says, Ananias went in, placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. It's fascinating again. I think we can just overlook these words. Brother Saul. That means brother in Christ. We have this union in Christ. This same guy who moments earlier was actively seeking to arrest everyone who said they were following Jesus. He goes in, Brother Saul. Just a statement of faith. Just trusting that God's already been working in this man who's God's bringing him to. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Has sent me to proclaim to you what he's done so that you may believe and be saved. Filled with the Holy Spirit. It's exactly what happens. And this is so amazing to me of the goodness of God's grace. Because what Saul deserved was God's wrath. I think about this. He was actively opposing Jesus and seeking to kill and arrest anyone who stood in his way. Stephen, again, the one he encouraged the murder for, Stephen was innocent. He was set up by people that lied against him so that they can arrest him. It wasn't even legitimate charges. And he was still encouraging his murder. Saul was a guilty man before the Lord. And so what he deserved was God's wrath, ultimately killed on the spot. God's done it before. I know this comes off harsh, but God's just. So not only did God extend mercy to Saul by not doing that, but he extended grace by not giving him what he deserved, but giving him something he did not deserve. That's forgiveness and salvation. This is amazing to me, how good God's grace is. Despite Saul's background, baggage, what he's actively doing, God inter- intervened and extended forgiveness and newness of life to this man named Saul. Which just goes a step further because Saul, who would be known as Paul eventually, wrote a lot of the New Testament by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so when you think about someone who experienced God's grace, Saul would be that man who knows God's grace more than most. And he writes in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, For you are saved by grace. Imagine what he would, I wonder as he wrote grace, he was just thinking back, all the things he did and how God intervened in the grace he was given. Knowing he deserved one thing and got something completely different. You are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. Again, Saul knows this because he was going actively to arrest Christians. And Jesus intervened. He wasn't seeking Jesus. Jesus came in and sought him. He says, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. It reminds me of Jeremiah. For Saul, despite what Saul would do, the damage he would do, ravaging the church, ravaging people of Christ, God had already prepared for him to do his workmanship, good works ahead of time. So his background and his baggage and his mess-ups did not define him. Jesus did. I just wish that would sink in for some of us. Because we get so held back by our mess-ups. Your mess-ups and your background, your baggage, your failures, your faults do not define you if you're in Christ Jesus. You have a new identity. That's Christ himself. 
As long as you have breath in your lungs and the heart beating in your chest, you have not outsinned God's grace. You have not. There is still time to repent, turn from your rebellion, and to Jesus as Lord. There's still time. No matter what you've done, I don't care. Here Saul is a murderer, murdering innocent people, and still Jesus says, you're forgiven by faith alone. I find it interesting how God chose to save Saul. He can do it by any means, by any method. He chose this humble house by this humble servant named Ananias. And I just wonder, what if comfort had caused Ananias not to go to Saul? What if fear would have frozen Ananias from coming to Saul as Christ commanded? Now I'm convinced, I can't prove this because it's not in the Bible. I'm convinced God would have raised up someone else. Convinced. But what I'm also convinced of is Ananias would have missed a tremendous movement of God and the blessing to see God work in an amazing way. And now his name is forever sketched for all eternity in God's story. Just by simple obedience. And I say simple, there wasn't no simple about it. That was scary obedience. As we wrap things down, just what Saul does next, we need to see. It's a response of flowing from faith of followers throughout the New Testament. Every time. You see in verse 18, it says, At once something like scales fell from his eyes. He received the Holy Spirit, filled the Holy Spirit. Then he says he got up and was baptized. And we see this over and over and over again, people following Jesus by faith in biblical baptism. I just find it interesting. I've talked to a lot of folks throughout the years about baptism, and so many times there's a hesitancy on whether or when people should be baptized. Almost like weighing its worth. Or for the other argument that they feel unworthy to be baptized. So the answer to both, it's worthy, and yeah, you were unworthy, but now you're made worthy because faith in Christ Jesus, you're made righteous. It's called imputed righteousness. God has exchanged your unrighteousness, your unworthiness for his worthiness and righteousness. I'm just wondering, have you been baptized according to the Bible? Biblical baptism. That's what we see over and over again. People come to faith, and where's the water? And we go back to the Great Commission when Jesus commands, go and make disciples, baptize, and teach. In case you're wondering, then he puts a time stamp on it. He says, and remember, I'm with you until the end of the age, meaning continue to go and make disciples, continue to baptize, and continue to teach to obey until I return. Man, baptism is so important as we follow Jesus. And so you see that he was baptized, and in verse 19 it says, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. And I love this because you see discipleship happening. Disciples make disciples. Disciples are in discipleship relationships. So are you being discipled and are you discipling someone else? This is a trademark of being a disciple. We're in discipled relationship, discipleship relationships. So my question for us is, are you? Are you in discipleship relationships? Are you with other brothers or other sisters in Christ to grow in your knowledge and following and leading in Christ because you weren't meant to follow Jesus alone? He called us into discipleship. And then thirdly, we see in Acts 20, it says, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus. Immediately, 
He started sharing the gospel about Jesus. And my question for us is, when is the last time you shared with someone about Jesus? This isn't for super Christians. This is throughout the New Testament. You see people following Jesus by faith, baptism, disciple, and sharing the gospel. And this is the only way this church is going to grow. And we're not in this church to grow numbers. We're in this church to reach a community. But as the community gets reached, you will see the local church get grow, grow. But the only way the local church will grow is if the church is out proclaiming the gospel, is being discipled, making disciples, is following Jesus by faith alone. It's amazing. And Saul did this because he had new life. New life in Jesus. He had new purpose in Jesus. And ultimately, he would get a new name, which I talked about earlier. Now, all of us aren't called to change our names, but Saul did. In Acts 13, we see him now called Paul. And the Apostle Paul would just usher in a great movement of God because of his faith in the Lord, just say, here I am, Lord, send me. He would never be referred to as Saul again except by his own testimonies in Acts 22 and Acts 26 when he shared his story. It's just a reminder of the truth that we see in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you know who anyone is? You know the co-worker you can't stand? The relative you don't even want to be around? How about those people who are actively attacking Israel right now? They're in the anyone category. That means no one's too far away from Jesus not to turn and still have faith. If anyone is in Christ, it says he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That means as soon as you transfer your faith from yourself to Christ Jesus, you are made new. You're no longer the person you used to be. Your past does not define you. Christ Jesus does. And so long, so many of us try to go and follow Jesus while still dragging our past behind us. And it weighs us down because we hear the whispers and lies of the enemy saying, oh, you remember what you used to do? Remember what you used to say? The things you used to watch, to be involved with, how you treat people? And all that stuff is true, but it's no longer true about you because you're in Christ Jesus. He's changing you. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it means he is working in you. I mean, it's part of your story. If you're a follower of Christ, you have a story. The story was before Jesus, Jesus, and now after Jesus. Notice it's all Jesus-centered. We have a story. And so, so many times we can be ashamed of our story. I'm telling you not to be ashamed of your story, but elevate Jesus as you share your story, what Jesus did in and through you and is doing. We practice our 15-second testimony. It's so, so powerful. Like, do you have a 15-second testimony? I mean, mine quickly is, as a kid and a young adult, I was full of anger and looking for identity and worth. And then I found Jesus at the age of 20. And since following Jesus, I became less angry. And the more I follow him, way less angry. And I have found identity and hope. So I don't have to search for it in people and places or circumstances. I have hope and life and identity found in Jesus because I was created in his image, remarkably and wonderfully made, and have a purpose and a life and a calling that's in Christ Jesus alone. Jesus changes it all. And so the question is, how is someone found in Jesus? Saul, who now knows Paul, would write in Ephesians 1.13, in him being Christ, 
You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed it. So some of us need to go back to when we believed it and fall back in love with Christ Jesus again. Others need to hear the gospel, and I wonder, do you believe it? The gospel is so simple. It's simply there is a God who created you to be with him, but your sins, your own mess-ups, have created a separation that you could do nothing about. Your good works, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. And if you could do anything, Jesus would not have been necessary. But the point is, God did something about it for you. That while we were stuck in our helplessness, stuck in our own sinfulness, separated from God, God stepped in, intervened in the life of Jesus. Living the perfect life that you were called, expected to live that you couldn't. And dying the death that you should have died to pay the price for sin that he died for you. So that everyone now who puts their faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, knowing that he died for sin, rise on the third day, conquering sin and death, and giving new life, is applied to everyone who believes. You don't have to understand all the doctrines of salvation and grace. You just know, I just know that I know that Jesus died for me. I've seen that I've sinned. I don't want to do this anymore. I need Jesus. That's what belief is. That's what faith is. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. And this is good news. So I beg you, if you're in this place and you have not believed the gospel yet, I beg you to believe. But the problem is I can't say enough words to make you believe. I can't be crafty enough to make you believe. God has to do that in your heart. But some of you, I know God is prodding you like he did me. And for others who have been following Jesus, your life should be changed. Your life should be looking different. And it's what you see, I'm going to close with this, in Saul. In verse 21, it said, All who heard him were astonished. And said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who were called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them prisoners to the chief priest. Like, isn't it the same guy who was persecuting and arresting and murdering people of the way, and now he's proclaiming the name of Jesus, calling everyone to turn and repent? What is going on? Has he lost his mind? And the answer is yes, yes. Because how would this happen? The point is, only God, only Jesus can change you from the person you used to be to the person that you're being developed into. Only Jesus. If there was people that had relationships in high school that would see me now, they'd be like, what in the world? I am completely different because of Jesus. As much as I followed him along the way, he did the rest. So does your life look different? Is Jesus shining through you to those around you? So what's your story? Where are you at? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes in the heart resulting in self-righteousness and confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. In a minute, we're going to have a prayer team and we love to pray with you, pray for you, but listen, if, if you have not shifted your faith from yourself to Jesus, I'm asking you to consider Jesus. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you in this moment? Finally to give up, to stop running, to stop resisting, and just rest in the love of Jesus. Maybe you need to take that step in biblical baptism. We'd love to pray with you, 
and lead you and help you to follow Jesus in that way. Maybe there's some people in your workplace where God's placed you that need to hear the hope of the gospel, that God's been just laying on your heart and fully and finally like, I need to do this. You need to do that. But it's time for us just to really, like I've heard one guy say, stop playing games. Start following Jesus as Lord over everything in our lives because he's worthy and he's trustworthy. I'm going to ask our, our band to come up, and what we're going to do, we're going to sing one last worship song. And I'm just going to ask you to respond to what God's doing in your life in this moment. It could be just sitting there in the quietness of your own heart as we sing and just pray and spend time with the Lord, dealing with what he's laid on your heart. Maybe you need to gather a couple of people right around the room. Just pray how the Lord's stirring and moving. We'll have a prayer team to the side. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you, walk alongside with you. May for many others, we'll, our natural response will be to sing and praise God because he's worthy of it. But as we end, I'm just going to read these lyrics because nobody wants me to sing. It wouldn't be good for anybody. Of a well-known song, I want the lyrics just to sink in your heart again if you've heard this many times. I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I will still follow. Though none go with me, I will still follow. Though none go with me, I will still follow. No turning back. No turning back. My cross I'll carry till I'll see Jesus. My cross I will carry until I see Jesus. My cross I will carry until I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And finally, the world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the goodness of your grace, and we thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you for never giving up on us. We thank you for being the God of second chances. We thank you for being the God of new life. Lord, I just pray that you move in this place. Fill this place with your presence and remind us how good you are, how amazing your love is, how patient and kind you are, and that you're fully worthy and trustworthy to follow. Lord, lead us in our response. Lead us in worship. Lead us as we prepare to lead this place just with our hearts on fire for you, to follow you and to invite others to know and to be known by you. Lord, rekindle the love for you that we first had. Bring us back from our strain and our stumbling, Father. We thank you because of Christ Jesus. Our past does not define us. Our identity, our worth, and our value is rooted in you and your unconditional love and your amazing grace. We thank you, Father. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.